I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. As usual, on the back of your bulletin, there's um, an outline of the message of the day with some blanks to be filled in. I want you to give it your special attention today because you know most of us sometime on Christmas Day will have a major meal with family or friends. And I'm hoping that you can find something, even one sentence from this message that you will share with the family before you pray before that meeting. And filling in the blanks may help you discover what the Lord would have you share with your family uh, from this message. Our scripture for the morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated and let us pray. <laughs> Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, here we are in the middle of the Christmas season and Mary... The mother of Jesus is a star of the season. Her likeness appears on countless Christmas cards. Teenage girls compete for the privilege of playing her role in the Christmas dramas. In December, the name of Mary is everywhere. Even in the world of sports, 
couple of weeks ago, I was watching a televised football game. The team that was behind by four points was around the 50-yard line. It was less than a minute to go in the game. Quarterback dropped back and threw a desperation pass to the end zone. And, of course, the commentators called it a Hail Mary pass. Now, where does that come from? Well, it comes from probably the most famous official Roman Catholic prayer. A prayer that is usually offered in times of crisis or urgency. And the prayer goes like this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. <clears throat> and by the way, that Hail Mary prayer in the football game was not answered. <laughs> Back in biblical times, women were usually treated as second-class citizens, almost as pieces of property. Thankfully, Jesus did more to lift the status of women than any person in history. And indeed, one of the key differences between Christianity and some other major religions is the status of women, which is so elevated within Christianity. And I am really proud that the United Methodist Church invites women as well as men who are called by God to be ordained ministers. And we do it because it's biblical in the Old Testament book of Joel and in the New Testament book of Acts, we read these words. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And that word prophesy means to preach. Now today I want to spotlight Mary. This remarkable young woman has a whole lot to teach us about living the faith. Mary was a Jewish teenager, the daughter of Hannah and Joachim. She was born and reared in the village of Nazareth up in northern Galilee. Her family members were godly peasant folks whose only claim to fame was that they were descendants of the great King David. But then thousands of other people could claim that distinction too. It's a little bit like an American who says that I'm a descendant of somebody who came over on the Mayflower. Well, wonderful, but there are thousands of others who could claim that distinction too. Mary was probably 14 or 15 years old when she became engaged to a young carpenter in Nazareth named Joseph. And along about that time, she was visited by a mysterious stranger, an angel named Gabriel. And his sudden visit to her must have scared her out of her wits because quickly he urged her not to be afraid. And he said to her, Mary, you have found favor in God's sight. And God wants to ask a big favor of you. He wants you to be the mother of his child, the child the scriptures speak about, the child who will be the savior of the world. Would you do God this favor? And Mary responded, well, how can this be? Because I don't have a husband. And, the, and Gabriel responded, the Holy Spirit will plant this baby in your womb, and your baby will be called the Son of God. 
And Mary's humble response was, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now think for a moment how she could have responded differently. She could have said, uh, Gabriel, sir, uh, I would like to help you, but I'm not sure my fiancé Joseph would understand, and I couldn't bear to do anything that would jeopardize our relationship. Or Mary could have said, Gabriel, find a grown woman for this job. For goodness sakes, I'm a teenager. Or she could have said, Gabriel, let me think and pray about this offer for a couple of days and I'll get back to you. No, she didn't offer any of those responses. Instead, in a trusting, simple, humble way, she said, let it be to me according to your word. I am the handmaid of the Lord. And here you see the greatness of Mary because she was completely available for God's purposes. No reservations, no strings attached. Here I am, let it be according to your word. Now by observing Mary, we learn several great truths. First, being blessed and used by God is usually costly, costly. And even from the beginning, Mary paid a huge price for being most favored by God. Because don't you know, well, she and Joseph married quickly and her pregnancy became obvious pretty soon. And so you know that the village gossips in Nazareth had a field day. Rather late in her pregnancy, her husband Joseph had to travel down to Bethlehem because of the census and to pay his taxes. Mary insisted on going with him. And I imagine that 70-mile ride on a donkey hastened the birth of her baby Jesus. Imagine now this 14, 15-year-old girl experiencing very natural, very painful childbirth in a cave stable in a strange town with animals all around. No mention even of a midwife to help out. What a huge difference that was from the birthing that goes on in the Lexington Hospital. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be circumcised on his eighth day, dear old man Simeon gave them a clue what was in their future. And he pointed this ominous prediction right at Mary. He said to her, a sword will pierce your own soul too. What was he talking about? Calvary. Several months later, Mary and Joseph learned that King Herod was out to kill their son. So they had to go into another country, several hundred miles to Egypt, and stay there for months. Paranoid, evil King Herod threatened to kill her baby boy because he knew that the baby was destined to be a king. And that was a threat to him. And so he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the baby boys who had been born since the time that star had appeared to the wise men. 
Given the size of the village of Nazareth, most of the experts believe that they killed 20 to 25 baby boys. Soldiers snatched them out of their mother's arms and rammed swords through them. Later, when Mary and Joseph returned to Galilee, they heard about the Bethlehem massacre, and they knew that Herod was after their boy, and they shared the heartbreak of those Bethlehem parents. Years later, probably when Jesus was a teenager, we think that his father Joseph died, leaving Mary, a young widow, with at least seven children to support. Now, of course, Jesus brought much joy to Mary. She knew he was a child of destiny. He grew up to be a popular and devout young man. And for a number of years, he took the place of his father in the carpenter shop, helping to support the family. And then later, when his younger brothers were old enough to work in the carpenter shop, uh, Jesus embarked on a controversial public ministry as a teacher and a miracle worker. Mary heard all kind of rumors about her son Jesus. Uh, some people said he was unstable, uh, maybe even dangerous. The worst day of her life came in Jerusalem. She had gone there with her adult children for the annual Passover festival. Rumors about Jesus were swirling everywhere. Some people said he's going to lead an army to liberate Israel from those hated Romans. Everybody knew Jesus had powerful enemies. And disaster struck so swiftly, Mary had no opportunity to shield her heart. She watched her son executed like a common criminal, suffering the most agonizing death that diabolical pagans could invent. And her broken heart must have cried out to her heavenly father, why? Why? And God Almighty, who knew why, was brokenhearted too. So let's be done with any kind of silly notion that those people who are most favored by God will just run from success to success, up the escalator of ease and comfort. It is just not so. The greatest the most favored in God's eyes, are usually called to sacrifice the most and suffer sometimes heartbreak. For example, Mother Teresa in India, Bishop Tutu in South Africa, Bishop John Paul in Poland, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany, and Martin Luther King Jr. in America. Remember the occasion when Jesus' disciples asked for a special status for them in, in his kingdom. And Jesus responded with a question, can you drink from the cup of my suffering? God is still calling people like you and me to his mission and ministry. Our task will not be as earth-shaking as was Mary's, but to every one of us, God comes with a spiritual task to accomplish, some special mission that fits our gifts. It might involve some criticism and some sacrifice, maybe even heartbreak. But in the midst of it all, 
we will experience that unique peace and joy that only come from God. Mary's greatness was her complete availability for God's purposes. She lent herself to the Lord, no strings attached, and that lending cost her enormously. But in the process, her life was fulfilled and glorified. I ask us, what kind of call is God sending my way and your way? Here's the second truth we learned from Mary. God does some of his best work in the dark, dirty places of this world. Now, the stable in which Jesus was born is often pictured on these Christmas cards as an attractive wooden structure with appropriate windows and a heavenly glow illuminating the place. Friends, that was not the place where Jesus was born. Jesus was probably born in a cave because you see Bethlehem sits on a series of limestone hills and limestone is a soft rock. It's easy to dig into. And so it was very common behind a, a typical house in Bethlehem for the owner to dig into that, that limestone hill and create a cave for the livestock. Uh, picture Picture a cave that's maybe 20 feet by 20 feet with maybe six feet in height with some kind of railing across the front to keep the, limes, the livestock in. That was the dark, dirty type of place where Jesus was born. I like the story about a church youth group that was producing a Christmas drama. And young man Ralph had wanted to play the part of Joseph, but the director had given that part to another young fellow. And instead, Ralph was assigned to be the innkeeper. But Ralph decided to play a trick on the young man portraying Joseph uh, to get back at him. The night of the play, full audience in attendance. Mary and Joseph come up to the, to the inn, knock on the door. Ralph opens the door, says, may I help you? Joseph said, oh, we need a room. My wife's about to have a baby. We desperately need a room. To the shock of everybody, Ralph says, sure, come on in. We got plenty of room here. <laughs> well, Joseph and Mary were stunned, but the young man playing Joseph was equal to the occasion. He looked around and said, you know, this place looked like a dump. We'd rather stay out back in the stable. Yes, Jesus entered the world in a dark, dirty place. Nothing antiseptic in sight. The smells were probably offensive, and the noises were loud and crude. Jesus was born into a world where a single human life was not worth very much. And in Rome, the cultured capital of the great Roman Empire, it was so pagan that People often left their unwanted babies out on their doorstep at night for, in, for animals to devour. And especially if the baby was a girl, her chances of survival were really small. But there was a group of people in Rome, a new religion called Christians. And they would go around the city at night and collect these unwanted babies from the doorsteps. 
and take them home and adopt them and love them and rear them because they remember Jesus saying, let the little children come to me and forbid them not. Today, America is supposedly a cultured, religious country, very different from ancient Rome. Yet in America today, the most vulnerable people are the most defenseless, unborn babies. The most dangerous place to be in America is in a mother's womb. Every year, almost a million unborn babies are destroyed, primarily because they are deemed inconvenient by the parents, and that must break God's heart. Yet in America, there are approximately 1.5 million couples who want to adopt a baby, a child. Yet last year, only about 135,000 children were adopted. If God cares about unborn babies, we should too. If you want to know where the living Christ is active today, it's in the dark, dirty places. In Jesus' mission statement, he said, I came to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed. The great African-American preacher, Gardner C. Taylor, recounts an incident from his early days as a rookie preacher down in Baton Rouge. He said one Sunday night, he was preaching in a small wooden church, and for some reason, the electricity went off. So he and the congregation were in total darkness. And Reverend Taylor didn't know what to do. He stood there silent for a few moments, and finally some elderly deacon shouted from the congregation. He said, preach on, preacher. We can see Jesus even in the dark. That deacon spoke more truth than he knew. Jesus is especially visible in the dark places of this world. Jesus is in the prisons where violence lurks around every corner. He's near to those young girls caught up in that human trafficking. Jesus lingers in those rooms where Alzheimer patients can't even remember their names. He hovers over those deeply depressed folks who want to take their own lives. And his Holy Spirit enables helpers like you and me, sent by Christ, to minister in all of those hurting places. Are we willing to be agents of Christ in those dark, dirty places? Two weeks ago, I received an email from my friend Sam, who lives over in Darlington. Many years ago, Sam was in my church in Columbia. And in his email, he was reminding me, telling me, about an incident that happened back during that period. He said, one Sunday in Sunday school class, there was a guest teacher from the Austin Wilkes Society. And he came there and told us about prison fellowship ministries and tried to recruit some volunteers. And Sam said, he spoke to my heart, but I did not volunteer. 
But in the months that followed, the Holy Spirit kept pressing this matter on Sam's heart. And so he finally volunteered. His first assignment was to minister to a young 19-year-old man who had been convicted of kidnapping and murder. And Sam said he saw God work such a powerful change in that young man that he, Sam, was hooked for life in prison fellowship ministries. Two weeks ago, he told me he was celebrating his 40th year with prison fellowship ministries. Currently, he's leading a Bible study group in the Darlington County Detention Center. Why? Because he remembered that Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. I am reminded of this statement that's in your bulletin by the great Scottish Christian George MacLeod. Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two thieves, between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, at a crossroads so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble because that is where he died, and that is what he died about. And that is where churchmen ought to be, and what churchmen should be about. Many years ago, there was a young couple in my church in Columbia who desperately wanted to have a baby, but they seemed unable to conceive. Months went by. And finally, they had just about given up and had decided to pursue adoption. But then she became pregnant. And of course, they were overjoyed. She gave birth to a little baby girl. And I visited mother and and baby in the hospital. And even amid the joy that was there, I detected a note of sadness. And the mother pulled the blanket back from over her baby girl and revealed that the little girl had no left hand. And I stood there anticipating the question, why would God allow that to happen? But she did not ask that. I stood there trying to think of some encouraging word I could offer. And this young mother said quietly, God knew how much we needed her, and he must have known how much she would need us. Well, soon after that, I was appointed to another church in another city and moved away, and I lost contact completely with this family. Eighteen years later, I was with my National Guard unit at Fort Stewart, Georgia, annual training, and one night there was a variety show to entertain the troops. Uh, Talented young people were brought from across South Carolina. And there was this particular young lady, very beautiful, who was introduced, and her singing and dancing routine were so wonderful 
that she got a standing ovation. And it was only when she was leaving the stage after her second bow that I noticed she had no left hand. Well, I quickly consulted the program, and sure enough, that was the same girl. And I sat there and said a prayer of thanksgiving for parents who had done such a splendid job of child rearing that they helped this young lady develop such enormous confidence with a focus on her talent rather than on her handicap. And I thought about the young mother who that day in the hospital said, God knew how much we needed her. And he must have known how much she would need us. And that reminded me of another young mother 2,000 years ago who confronted by the challenge of God with an enormous task, simply replied, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Will you join me this Christmas in making this promise to God in honor of Mary and in service to her son? Lord, I will be more available to you in 2020 than ever before, regardless of the cost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.